0: Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB five zero six eight one two narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. It's summertime. And as the song goes, the living is easy, the sun is warm and the air is sweet. Come and join me in the cool of the night, with a good book or two. While we're away, instead of the normal Nighttime on Still Waters program, For a couple of weeks we'll be spending a little time together enjoying some readings. The stern doors are open to the night coffee pot is still warm and the biscuit barrel is close by. Make yourself comfortable and we'll begin. For the final choice of our summer reading I want to look at a book that's very, very different. It still has water and travelling on water at its heart, but it's a river, although there are canals around it. The mode of transport is a canoe rather than a narrowboat or a working boat. And it's actually a children's story rather than an account written for an adult audience. But nevertheless, I find it quite, Spellbinding, and there's something about it that I think captures the essence of what it is to be near water and certainly to be on water and the feelings that it engenders. And the book in question is The River at Green Know by Lucy M. Boston. Lucy M. Boston's first book, The Children of Green Know, which was published in 1956 and for which she's probably best known, is a favourite of Donna and mine. We listened once to a fabulous radio dramatisation of it on Radio 4 on Christmas, and we then tried to listen to it each Christmas until the tape wore out. And so the whole story around Green No is, has got a lot of red resonances with us. For those coming across Lucien Boston and the Green Know sequence of books for the first time, the story which sets everything off is the first story, The Children of Green Know. And it's a strange and mysterious story of blended realities about a young boy who's been sent to stay in a very old house called Green No. And Green No is a character in itself within the books, and probably the most loved character within the books. And Tolly, this boy, has been sent to Green no to stay for Christmas. And while he's there, we have time slips and shifts, really in the manner of Tom's Midnight Garden, but more with... Elements or certainly the inference of ghost stories about it too there are there are disembodied voices and laughter and and there's a slight sort of sinister sinister is the wrong word, a sense of threat, a sense of danger, and yet it's always done with a light touch and without the feeling of menace if you can understand what I'm saying and actually green no. The house actually really does exist and Lucy M. Boston lived there and purposely set her stories within the house and it's open to the public and it's one of those very few places that live up to its expectations and live up to its reputation. Donna and I visited it one summer and for one reason or another it was open, but it wasn't open to the public. Or, or we couldn't... I can't remember the ins and outs of it, but we couldn't get in. But nevertheless, we were allowed in the gardens and, and the, the people who owned the house were incredibly hospitable and kept apologising for us not being able to go in and uh, see inside the house. And the grounds themselves were, were lovely in a fairly wild and informal sense this is not a stately home and these are not stately gardens. They are loved gardens and a loved home. And you can feel that. And there's something kind of strange about the whole place. There's a lovely feeling to it. But anyway, getting back to the story of The River at Green know This book was published in 1959 and has a totally new set of characters. And Perhaps it's for that reason that it's not been well received and a lot of the reviews, even today, are fairly negative about the book and I'm not quite sure why. Green, no, obviously is still very much part and parcel and the centre of, if not the plot, a central character within the story. And that it's true that there's more fantasy and even elements of the surreal in this story than there are in the earlier ones. But the story is many-layered, and there's some very nuanced and, I think, important subtexts to this story. A subtext of displacement, of alienation, and of homelessness. The two main child characters are refugees that are taken in, one summer to Green Know. And they spend their time with some of the other children there exploring the river and the canals around the house. And the two two refugee children are called Oscar and Ping, who we will meet in a minute. And like the earlier books, this story continues with that wide sweep of lyrical beauty and gentleness that's cut through with an edge of threat and perhaps jeopardy. Whilst there is beauty there, it's not idealised, it's not romanticised. There is a very knowing acknowledgement of the darker side of life. And the river weaves its magic in the same way as it does in The Children of Green know. The river seems to function as that untamed, perhaps threatening at times presence. In the first book, Tolly can't get to Greenlow because it's flooded and the floods continue through the first part of the house and we don't know whether it's because it's protecting the house or whether it's undermining the house. At another point in the story, one of the main characters is in danger of being drowned in the river. And so the river is this rather dubious character that we don't know whether to trust or not. And Lucianne Boston plays on this in helping the children in the river at Green Know to begin to learn about their lives, learn about themselves. Well, let's get started. The first passage I want to read is an account of the children going through the lock in a canoe, which is, to be honest, perhaps not the best idea. And the children have already encountered it earlier on in the book in a rather frightening way. They have, first of all, been enchanted by swans and the cygnets and how the cygnets ride upon the mother's back, etc. And then it all goes dark when they get attacked by the cob and the pen, but particularly the cob, the male swan. And also there is this little orphan cygnet which the pen the mother refuses to acknowledge and keeps pushing aside. And then the male swan tries to drown. The signet survives, but the whole picture is very dark. And this is all happening while the children are under attack from the cob swan. And then they go through this lock and the lock sort of is full of thundering water and is like being at the bottom of a dark, greasy, mossy, slippery cavern. And so the lock conjures up everything that's threatening and fearful about life. And now we start a new day with this passage that I'm going to be reading. It's a new morning, a new sun, and everything begins again afresh. And the children then encounter the lock again. Very early next morning, creeping down through a curtained house, they came out into a world that Ida hardly recognised. It felt tilted, with the moon in an unexpected side of the sky because it was setting, and the growing light of dawn was farther east than she had ever seen it before, as if the points of the compass had been displaced. The bullocks were asleep. So were the swans. No smoke came from any cottage chimney. No birds moved. A vivid red fox cantered across the field with a moorhen in its mouth. Only the water was loud. The fall at the water gates shouted carelessly to the dawn as if certain no one was listening. The children loosed the canoe and set off, paddling expertly and swiftly, because they were half afraid of such an empty world. They operated the lock for the first time rather anxiously with their own lock-key. Both boys were eager to turn it, while Ida sat in the canoe and hoped that they would not do it too suddenly so that she would be sucked down and under. She need not have feared, for it took both of them to turn it at all, and they puffed and panted and stopped several times to rest. And when they were all in the canoe again, they launched out across the mill pool and were caught up and whirled along in the mill race. The current pounded on the bottom of the canoe like a hammer so that it bucked and tossed and the children sat helpless and apprehensive under the unfamiliar setting moon, but were carried safely into the lower reaches. It was dawn without sun or wind. The sky was not crowded with cloud shapes. It was just pale. The water, like tarnished quicksilver, and the leafy distances, like something forgotten. The canoe moved in a close circle of silence, so that everything that was near enough to come within the magic circle was singled out for the imagination to play with. Such were the twisted, pollard willows, striking attitudes along the bank, many of them old and bent like old men, or, more correctly, like "'old men's coats.' "'For they gaped open, "'and were quite hollow inside, "'looking, as Ping remarked, "'ready for demons, "'who could step in and wear the tree "'like a coat at night.' "'Ping was a great believer in demons, "'but the thought of them "'did not seem to disturb him. "'They were just what he would expect.' And I think that passage perfectly exemplifies Lucien Boston's capacity of writing with light and shade, of a palette that swirls with colour, with gentleness and beauty, but also with that, that threat and that sense of jeopardy, that sense of a darkness. But the section I really want to take you to is really the introduction of the children to the river, which I think is rather magical and and, and beautiful. The first morning was fine and windless. Ida, Oscar and Ping went off after breakfast. At the bottom of the garden there was a wooden boathouse, its four corner posts planted in a marshy piece of the bend of the river. They ran across the unsteady gangway and opened the boathouse door. Inside it was half dark, and there was a smell of concentrated river water. The river and walls were greened with perpetual damp, and wriggly with elastic water patterns. Low down, level with their feet, a canoe lay fretting and tugging gently on its mooring. It was painted blue and brown, and the water that reflected it received it as part of itself. The canoe was lightly built and beautifully balanced, and it would comfortably hold three children and when Ida put the weight of one foot into it, it was like treading on the water itself. It yielded so far that she feared it was sinking under her, but then the water resisted, and she sat down feeling like a water lily on its leaf. The boys followed her in. Ping sat in front and Oscar in the stern. They parted the willow strands that hung like a net across the opening, and the river was theirs. The sun had not yet pierced the haze of morning. The water was like a looking-glass, with a faint mist of breath drying off it. The children felt it was so bewitching that without even a discussion they turned downstream, drifting. Silently along, willing to become part of the river if they could. Along the edge of the water ran a ribbon of miniature cliff. The top edge, undulating, like the cliffs of Dover. The vertical sides pierced with holes the size of a golf ball. Sometimes the cliff was high enough to show seams of gravel or strata of different soils. Above it, willow herb or loosestrife or giant dock heavy with seed rose against the sky and reflected themselves in the water with an effect like skeleton writing. The canoe seemed to hover between two skies. The banks of the river were richly alive. More hens hurried from side to side, trailing a widening V. Fish along the surface, water rats swam underwater, their V trailing from the end of their projecting noses, or they peeped out from holes, where it might be mice, or martins, or a kingfisher. The rushes ticked like clocks. Meadowsweet suddenly bowed down from above, almost to the children's noses as a bumblebee landed on it. Or a rush waved desperately as something attacked it, out of sight, at the bottom. They drifted happily along, a twist of the paddle now and again being enough to keep them on a straight course. And presently the sun came out and beautifully warmed them in the shell of the canoe. And with the sun appeared another host of living things, butterflies, dragonflies, water boatmen, brightly coloured beetles and lizards, and high up in the sky a weaving of swallows. And the canoe drifted to a standstill. Let's shut our eyes, said Ida, and say everything we can hear. They all began together, so that their voices sounded like a cluster of ducks, or any other young things that might be sunning themselves on the river. Ida, however, said that they must take it in turns, so that they wouldn't count anything twice. Water under the canoe's ribs, whirlpool round my paddle, Drip of the end of ping's paddle, bird flying off tree, larks singing, rooks circling, swallows diving, rustling in grass, grasshoppers, honeybees, flies, Frogs. Bubbles rising. A weir somewhere. Tails swishing. Cow patting. Aeroplanes. A fishing rod playing out. Zzz, buzz. Trill, crick. Whiz, plop. Flutter, splash. And all the time, everywhere, whisper, 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 lap, chuckle and sigh. If someone moved in the canoe, a moment later on the far side of the river, all the rushes nudged each other and whispered about the ripple that had just arrived. Everything's trying to say something, said Ping. Fishes poke up round mouths as if they are stammering. Do you think, said Ida, out of a silence, that the sound I can hear now might be singing, fish? And they all listened. And there was a new sound coming from farther downstream. Round the next bend, a musical, bubbling, warbling whistle. And as in all Lucy M. Boston's stories, things don't turn out like you think they might turn out. But I'll leave that hanging in the air. So, this is the Narrowboat Erica, wishing you a very good night. Good night.